Welcome to The Rodcast with Rod Turner, the show all about real estate. We discuss everything that affects asset-backed businesses, investments, and go deep into the details with some of the best in the business. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Rodcast. I am extremely fortunate to be on the 30th floor of the oh, Barclays building. Don't get busy. <laughs> with my guest, Kwesi Upham. So welcome, Kwesi. I hope I'm more than just a guest. Well, guest, friend, <laughs> uh, confidant. That's fine, I'll take guests, that's fine. So Kwesi obviously works here at Barclays as well as investing directly into his own property deals. And I thought it'd be really good to get you on to just have a good discussion about some of the things in the news at the moment, yeah. investing in general, what's, what we're seeing from maybe different aspects of what some of our listeners might do in terms of, of property investing, so mm-hmm. some of what the big funds are doing, the REITs, uh, yeah. some of the stocks and shares involved in property as well. So, but before we get on to that, do you just want to give us a quick introduction on what it is you do here at Barclays? Wow, yeah. <laughs> People often don't ask me about what I do here at Barclays and property in particular. It's often more about what I do outside Barclays, so that question caught me a bit off guard, but I like it. <laughs> um, what I do here, actually, so at Barclays, I work in strategy. I'm part of the strategy function here. I, I work at group level, but focusing more on the investment bank, and I basically helped to define the high-level plan that the different businesses then take on to create execution plans for um, mainly focus around impact assessments so spending time looking at market structure changes that are coming up or regulatory changes that are coming up understanding what the impact is on the bank and the different groups in the bank the investment bank corporate um, wealth management retail credit cards and outlining the high-level strategy and then within each of those businesses they'll have project managers who take the strategy and turn those into implementation plans which they deliver on. Wow, that's, I mean, that's fascinating. What, just, before, before we get on to some of my questions then, just on that, what have been some of the major impacts on Barclays Bank over the last couple of years from one, a regulatory point of view and two, just a market risk? Yeah, so I mean, I think not just Barclays but generally in the industry, the biggest um, iceberg, if you like, has been Brexit. Yeah. Interestingly, for me at least, in 2017 or so, I did the impact assessment. Not, sorry, not 2017. The vote was in 2016. Yeah. So 2015, I did the impact assessment on Brexit, which is about six months before the vote. Yeah. So this is, this is normally how my role works, is that we do something called horizon scanning, looking into the future, trying to see what's going to happen and then coming up with a strategy. So even though in that assessment, the conclusion was that Brexit was an unlikely scenario, yeah. we had a strategy to deal with it if it did happen. And so Brexit has been a big one. Um, I think probably the biggest, taking Brexit out of the equation, even with Brexit in the equation, the biggest um, challenge in the market has been the low interest rate environment. Yeah. So we went through a decade or so um, of high rates, um, rising rates and high, high, relatively high inflation. Um, then we went through a decade of zero or negative rates. And so in an industry that's based on volatility, trading against movements and trying to predict the direction both up and down and trying to make a profit, if it moves up or down, you lose when there's no movement. Yeah, It's less so about whether it goes up or down than just having volatility. And there's been a lack of volatility in the market in the last 
decade, really. And, and on the on on that, what's I think quite interesting is people always look at that interest rate level, and like you said about the volatility and, and what you can invest in and start looking at percentages and, mm-hmm. and, and return rates and thinking, God, well, this actually isn't as good as it's always been. Yeah. However, you've got to really compare it to what else you can do at that time. Yeah. And if it's the same all over the world and exactly. interest rates are low, then actually comparing it to what has happened yeah. is kind of irrelevant. It's comparing it to what else is out there, what right are the now. other opportunities so right you, now. You hit the nail on the head, and I think this is something that investors typically don't focus on so much. So vertical cross-sectional analysis is what we call it. You can look at things, you can compare something to itself over time. So you can look at property, how that's performed against similar property over yeah. time. Or you can take property and compare it to other assets over time. So take physical property, compare it to um, trust or other forms of property ownership over time. But the thing that people always forget is comparing something to something else right now. And, and that is so important now, especially when we're seeing so many regulatory changes in property where you've got, especially with landlords and yeah. old, old, older landlords that maybe were, have been in the game for 20, 30 years that are saying they're, they're getting out because property's doomed and all yeah. this. But actually, yeah, can, when you compare it to looking back at, ha- at some of the returns they have got yeah. over those years, absolutely. It's doomed but, compared but, to that. Yeah, but, uh, but compared to but, other things you can get right now. So if you take your money out of property, yeah. where are you going to put it? Whatever, wherever you put it isn't going to get you returns that you got in property 30 years ago. Yeah. And so I think, yeah, the, the key thing is to focus on analyzing cross-sectionally, looking at your asset class and analyzing to other things. If you divested from that, where would you put your money and what would the return be? Yeah. And that's more realistic in terms of... And I think, I think going on to... God, isn't it great? We're not even on our first question yet. <laughs> we're already all yeah. into this. But this is why I like talking to you, right? <laughs> but... On that point of diversity um, and diversification, I think this is where a lot of people, especially when they're um, investing directly into property, start to to worry. And, and my kind of advice is always, look, if you're investing directly, it's prove that concept, scale it up. And then when you're at a point where that investment is a significant um uh, proportion of your wealth, yeah. then it could be time to diversify. And the yeah. whole point of diversifying is to look at investment choices that are uncorrelated yeah, to that. Exactly. Not necessarily negatively, but uncorrelated. So what that means is if if uh, asset A goes up, then the factor that caused it to go up does not uh, cause any issue with yeah. investment yeah. choice B. Um, yeah, I think I, a good example of that, though, that correlation is if you look at... Um, Sterling, so mm-hmm. how the pound is doing relative to US dollar or to euro versus the FTSE 100. Mm-hmm. And that, that's a really you know, good, strong correlation yeah. that's often typically negative insofar as when the pound does badly, FTSE companies do well, mm. because, mainly because a lot of them earn foreign currency and so translated into pounds, when the pound does badly, their revenue increases. But, but would you say that's a negatively correlated asset or just an uncorrelated asset then? Well, if the, the pound goes up, FTSE generally tends to go down. So then it would be more of a hedge than a diversification? Exactly. Yeah. And so that's that negative correlation where actually if something goes up, you're getting the upside somewhere else. Or if something goes down, yeah. you're, getting the, you're not getting And I think the point with diversification is you don't want it to be negatively correlated. Mm-hmm. You want it just to be uncorrelated because yeah. you don't want when one thing goes up, the other yeah, goes down. Goes down. You want 
both of them to go up but not not together and not for Mm. the same reasons and not with the same triggers but ultimately you want to and maybe another example as well is um, stock market versus oil so not all the companies in the FTSE are oil companies, but they all use oil. Yeah. So they all have a dependency on oil. And therefore, when oil prices rise, it will typically negatively affect them. But your oil price will rise and your revenue from oil will go up. And then there'll be the companies on the FTSE, which are oil companies, and they'll go up as well. Yeah. So that's the kind of uncorrelated behavior that you can use to diversify your portfolio. Brilliant. Right, now let's get on to our first kind of topic <laughs> after that. What a great start. Um, which is really just to discuss some of the things we're hearing in the news at the moment. Um, and one of those stories that's kind of been bubbling away, and almost we're, we're kind of a bit late talking about it now, is WeWork. Yeah. Um, obviously, WeWork was, I think, uh, this time last year, valued at somewhere around $40 billion. They were talking about floating it on the stock market. Their biggest backer is SoftBank. Mm-hmm. Um, and now that uh, they've held off doing the IPO because really they realize that no one is, 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 gonna, is, is paying that price for it. And um, that value has come down to under $10 billion, I yeah. think, now. What are your thoughts on WeWork? Yeah, I mean, I think, first of all, valuation is always an interesting point and an interesting thing to discuss with people because... What is evaluation? What is it based on? One of the one of the things I like future incomes probably. Well, that, I mean, that, that, yeah. that would be a good way to yeah. do it. But for example, if you look at WeWork, their valuation wasn't based on future mm. income. If you look, for example, at Regis, which is a, a business that operates very similarly and, to WeWork, and they're called what are they called now? It's not Regis; it's something else that they're called. And I always forget. I always forget. I, always forget, I call them Regis. I always forget the name. But yeah, it's it's. IWG. IWG, that's it. I knew it began with an I. Yeah, that's right, actually. That's the, the group name is IWG. Yeah. Um, Regis, still trades as Regis PLC. Mm-hmm. But, but, so if you look at Regis um, PLC and IWG, the group, they operate a very similar model to WeWork. A massive difference, actually, in that they hold a lot of physical assets on their balance sheet. Well, this, this is the thing, isn't it? And it's, it's the old kind of Propco, um, Opco scenario. And, and what I think WeWork have done it actually does follow that model but it's not by WeWork it's actually yeah. if you look at the owner of WeWork yeah. the shareholder which I yeah. think is Adam whatever Adam name, Newman I know I was going to get to Adam but I think just, just on, the, on the valuation point so the WeWork valuation wasn't income driven it wasn't like cash flow multiples or anything I think um, uh, Regis, IWG, were doing a similar model, massively less in valuation, even though they had physical assets, profit- mm-hmm. profitable company running, operating, just less sexy. The interesting thing about um, WeWork, really, though, is SoftBank's investment. Mm-hmm. So SoftBank investing WeWork, so- the value of SoftBank is now correlated to the WeWork value. So it's in SoftBank's interest to inflate the value of WeWork in order for SoftBank to be worth more yeah. and therefore be able to leverage that value in order to invest in other assets. Which essentially is why they haven't jumped out of it altogether. And so um, they hold a big stake. Losses, yeah. And for them, in fact, they've invested more. So when everybody was realizing that WeWork wasn't, what it said, wasn't doing what it said on the tin, SoftBank's response was to put more money in. Because... Mm. In for, a pound, in for a penny, in for a pound. They are so far in now that it's in their best interest to A, inflate the valuation or keep it inflated, but B, keep pumping more money. But is that sustainable? No. So I think then coming to Adam, Adam Newman, the founder and former CEO, who 
um, I'd say had let's call it questionable character you can look at some of the things that he did an obvious one is he bought the name we and trademarked it and then sold that trademark back to his own company that he'd founded I mean <laughs> I don't even know where to go with that well, one, one of the other things is basically what, what, the way, what I was getting at in terms of the Propco Opco and how they were structured was actually a lot of the buildings were owned by Adam Newman yep. who then would lease them to WeWork to WeWork on quite high uh, like highly structured leases yeah. which is what you'd expect a, a Propco to do what a lot of investors felt they were investing in was that overarching company and it wasn't the case it was yeah. WeWork but even just the brand hold it. a lot of investors thought they were investing in the brand it mm. turns out they didn't even own the brand because the CEO and founder owned the brand and he was waiting <laughs> Yeah. to sell it to the yeah. company. So th- I think Newman's character was probably one of the main reasons why the IPO failed. Um, and that's why they probably got... Uh, one of the conditions was he had to come yeah. off the board. There, but wasn't but it? He, he came off the board with a ton load of money <laughs> and options to... If, if they do do the IPO, he still stands to make a ton load of money. So mm-hmm. that was really interesting to me that he came out of it probably with more than oh, he, he, he would have. Well, he's come out of it... I can't see a position where he could have come out of it better. Yeah, yeah. it's true. Even even with the IPO, if it had gone through, he would have made a lot of money, so but what, there would have been conditions. So why do you feel then that, that was not a good investment for investors to invest in? We work in particular. So coming to the other point we were making, income valuation. So we work is not currently profitable. It's making a loss. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's not a good investment for investors if there's massive opportunities for growth involved. But as we've seen, in their numbers, the growth is tailing off. Um, you mentioned the assets, the lack of asset backing on their balance sheet. A lot of the assets were either in Newman's name or through companies that he controlled who owned the buildings. WeWork doesn't have a lot of physical buildings. I think, for me, the main reason why it wasn't a strong investment personally was because, especially for a company in rental, it hadn't been. It only had. It been through one economic cycle, mm. so we don't know what's going to happen to rework and its occupants when there's another massive recession like two thousand and eight. Yeah, you know they all have short-term contracts. Um, the nature of rework's model is that they buy space or they lease space on long-term contracts and then release it. Well, it's arbitrage, really isn't it? And it's arbitrage of, of office space and office t- and lease terms. So, yeah, and, then and it worked during the recession. So they came into a market where there was an overflow of office space. Mm. You know, companies had been failing left, right, and centre. There was massive office space, so they could get really good deals on this empty office space, and then do it on short-term leases. But as we get to this point in the economic cycle, we're really at the top. Office spaces aren't as prevalent. A lot of offices have been turned into property, residential mm-hmm. property, as we know. So there's a reduction in the volume of office spaces on the market. Um, once those, and they've taken up a lot of the empty spaces already. So why then does Regis or IWC? Why does that? work it works because they have assets they have companies that fill those offices in the long term and they've been doing it for years mm. so for so me they've got a track record of income producing assets a track record of income producing track record of managing debt track record of managing the business through multiple economic cycles for me managing debt is uh, a great point that we kind of picked up on but yeah the, the, they manage their debt yeah. through that financial crisis mm. um, rework it looks like can't manage their business through the most 
greatest greatest of times mm-hmm. with what has happened in the IPO. So, I, and do you I, think it's because they've taken on too much debt at any point? Or the thing about them is that a lot of their debt that they have is actually structured in a way that it's not so encompassing to them as mm-hmm. a company. It doesn't stop them being able to operate. In fact, yeah. they're able to grow at scale because they've taken on a lot of equity. Or well, it was quite sensible to take on that equity uh, rather than debt because yeah. debt would have. Well, it depends how you look at it. Because yeah. If you're one of those equity investors, you may disagree. But. Convertible. So a lot of, to be fair, a lot of the, the even a lot of the debt that they issued was convertible, so it was turned into equity when the, those companies felt the IPO was coming and they could make more profit. So the debt structuring actually was really good on their part, and whoever Adam got to advise them on that did a good job. The investment from SoftBank again, really, really good and really powerful. The problem is more operationally, mm-hmm. and as we, you know, operations, company like Regis operationally is very strong, very solid, good track record over multiple years, decades. WeWork didn't have any of that, so I think for me, WeWork would have been a good short-term bet. It wouldn't have been an investment; it would have been a trade. It would have been going in because I thought I could make a good short-term profit, but then a long term, I probably wouldn't have stuck in mm-hmm. until they'd proved their business model more. Okay, brilliant. Now, other other things in the news at the moment. Then we t- kind of touched on office space there, and what about retail? Because retail is obviously seeing a massive sort of shift in in, in what's happening with online uh, purchasing, Amazon, things like that. And yeah. Retail, not just your high street sort of shops, but yeah. also your big sort of shopping malls and shopping centres are really, really seeming to struggle. You've got companies like Into, mm-hmm. whose share price has gone from I think nine hundred pence down to about thirty four pence. Yeah, they are, they obviously are quite heavy in in, in retail in places like the Trafford Centre, yeah. and Lakeside, and things like Watford. that. Watford. Yeah. So, um, what what's your take on 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 retail at the moment and and some of those big companies that own a lot of that space? That's a great question, actually, because I think UK retail is probably in for a massive correction. People have been looking at what's been happening and there's been a steady decline, but that's not the same as a correction. Mm -hmm. So I think the decline has been quite slow, very steady. Um, Companies, uh, retail outlets reducing their, their floor space, Debenham recently, I think, yesterday announced they're getting rid of a bunch of shops and they've been struggling for a long time. So retail's in a really bad place in the UK. question is why? And I love this question. I always ask why. Mainly because people's behaviour patterns are changing and a lot of the retailers have been slow to adapt to that. Someone like Amazon came into this ready for this change in the retail market, whereas a lot of the retailers are not. But it's interesting that Into, up until recently, was actually doing pretty well relative to its peers. Mm. So it was able to stave off a lot of the main issues for quite a long time. Well, I think, I think the, the, the stat was they've got still 95% occupancy, mm-hmm. which is pretty good. I think That's they, amazing. I think they've got 97% of uh, this quarter's covenants have paid on time, yep. which is great. But what that doesn't tell you is out of those covenants or their tenants, who whose rent has dropped. Yes. And... What we're seeing with these businesses, all these businesses, you name it, is, it seem to be struggling on the high street. Yep. There's CVAs coming out left, right, and centre. And to um, be fair, we into themselves are in a form of CVA at the moment. Yeah. So I think one of the new things for me about into is that between 2017 and 2018, their value, their, their property portfolio value went from 10 billion to 8 billion. So it dropped by nearly two billion in the space of eighteen months, yeah. and that's just 
according to their own records, yeah. how they've had to write down their own impaired assets. So that's a massive decline in a short space of time, which I think is telling about the future, because in their, in their report, anyway, there's no strategy for reversing that. I, 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 do, I do feel for, for these companies, because they're dealing with a huge asset base that is very illiquid yeah. and at the time when you need it to be liquid yeah. it's obviously less liquid exactly. and the time you want to um, get on debt it's it's much harder to get on debt because it's not they're not thinking right you as a company are bad they're thinking that industry is bad yeah. so it is tough but it's it's about understanding how they can repurpose those assets and repurpose yeah, purpose not just the like you go to the Trafford Centre or Lakeside Centre, and these are huge, huge places, and that's kind of what what they built. So it's what what is going to be the next big thing where people go on a rainy Saturday afternoon? Yeah. Is it going shopping or is it doing something else? And I think that's something that they've got to try and. Tap I think into. to a large extent they are working on it, um, at least in um, Watford where I've been to, they've, they're trying. I, I can give you examples from other parts of the world, for example, in the US, where they've probably had this issue for much longer. There, the whole mall experience mm-hmm. has been suffering for probably going on to 20 years, and there's yeah. massive declines in malls and companies that own malls. The assets' values have dropped. I mean, Intu have a luxury, maybe, of that their property portfolio has only leveraged about 55%. So a lot of um, companies would probably have a higher um, leverage ratio than that. So that screens into a little bit. But the, to answer your question, mainly mixed-use spaces is mm-hmm. the answer. You can go around the world, um, Asia in particular, and the US, and a lot of these malls or places have been turning to mixed-use spaces. So, for example, you can go to a mall, um, Carmen Bush one in America, where right in the center of the mall is a climbing wall. Mm. So people don't go there to go shopping, or not just to go shopping, they go there to go climbing. And you have things like um, kids' soft play areas, yeah. massive ones. So families bring their children there to go to the soft play. Oh, wait, actually, while I'm here, I will grab some stuff mm-hmm. or I'll see something that I like. It's the idea that destiny, a long time ago, it was all about going to these off, out-of-town um, big mega stores. That trend is really reversed, and it's more about going to destinations that have multiple things that you can do in one go. Experiences. Experiences. Yeah, Yeah, you know, we've talked millennials in particular value experiences a lot more. So if you can go somewhere where maybe you can do a course in making candy floss Mm. and then there are shops so you can actually buy some clothes. I I think from a a landlord's point of view like into, the key really is you want whoever your tenants are going to be to be sustainable. Um, You want them to be there for the long term and and profitable because if they're not, it causes you stress and could really uh, bring down the value of of your property and your assets. So they don't necessarily want to go out and get more of the same and get the next... Jamie's Kitchen and the next yeah. Toys R Us because that's not going to help Jamie's Kitchen them. is going under too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly, that's what I mean. I think it's hard. What, one thing that is positive is they do have quite a lot of leisure uh, properties which yeah. are doing really well at the moment. Mm-hmm. So that's that's a good thing. And like you say, their debt isn't isn't heavy, no. so which is which is working in their favour. So if that was high, they'd, they'd be in difficulties. Although I think yesterday they did announce that they're trying to raise another billion from existing shareholders. Yeah. They sold about five hundred million in foreign assets. 
companies that they own or businesses, shopping centres in Europe mainly. So they're, they're trying to reduce... And that's tough because those, those assets in this market will be worth a lot less than they were, say, I don't know, 10 two years, years ago. Yeah, I mean, like I say, the, the asset value has dropped by $2 billion mm. in two years. So they're selling those assets at the reduced price, not the price they yeah. were two years ago. So they clearly need some cash to... Yeah, to, to but you it. mentioned something as well, actually, which was sustainability. And um, I think at the beginning you asked a question about some of the stuff that has impacted finance... I think if I look at my purview and strategy now, going forward, one of the main things that is occupying my time is sustainability. Mm. So uh, Brexit, low interest rates have been big things in the past, but looking forward, sustainability across industry. Well, I think, I think that's a really interesting point, and we're going off, off piece, but that's great. But <laughs> yeah. um, I think BlackRock announced the other a uh, couple of weeks ago that I think it was out of their, I don't know, six to eight trillions of assets under management, one of the things they were focusing on was environmental and sustainability there. And they were looking at not necessarily coming out of anything coal oil related, which is obviously a huge amount of their portfolio, but certainly they were looking at doing things to change that environmental and sustainability point. So when you look at a business and their different departments, traditionally it's always been finance and operations on top and then maybe a bit of growth sales and marketing and then HR now environmental has stepped in to be its own department and I think Warren Buffett said last year in their Berkshire Hathaway um, general meeting or shareholders meeting that the environmental department now sits directly below him and Charlie Munger so it's it's now shot right up to the forefront of all these major businesses um, I was speaking to a really interesting guy the other day who owns quite a big business park in Ireland and um, he's got tenants such as Google and Oracle and he was saying when they put um, when they have to get those tenants in the list of sustainable and environmental things yeah. they had to make sure their buildings and the car parks and the electric charging for the vehicles they had to have otherwise they wouldn't have, have got those blue chip tenants and it's it's a really really big thing I think it's a massive kind of changing point in the market so yeah, yeah I, I mean I think here well more generally in terms of um, listed companies a lot of them as you say not just Berkshire Hathaway are having direct reporting into the senior management mm. CEO CFO COO from a sustainability perspective I know that as I say my main purview here has been sustainability for the last 6-12 months and we've there's a board level um, task force working group on sustainability that reports to the CEO. So and then further to that, we've had publicly letters from shareholders imploring us not to fund or finance companies that are wow, engaged in brown activities or non-green activities. Yeah. So the pressure is coming from all angles. Then you have being a member of Barclays here. I have colleagues. You know, me and my colleagues put pressure on the firm. To be more yeah, sustainable, yeah. more social, more have more of a governance focus on ESG, environmental sustain, social governance. So, and then so this is finance. Then the other element, the lens actually to put on it more importantly for me is regulation. Mm. So governments, especially in the EU, especially in the UK, but also coming from Europe and the US, governments are legislating for firms to be um, to disclose more about what they're doing from an environmental, social perspective, and to report. 
So from a risk management perspective, the Bank of England, for example, are introducing sustainability as one of the stress tests that banks have to go through, how sustainable you'll be given certain market events not related to finance but related to the environment or related to uh, other but, adverse but, things. But in property, it's the same because you look at investing in a different location and one of the big things I look at now are flood risks. Yeah. Um, yeah. And 10 think, years ago, that would people, never have been on my on my radar. I don't think a lot of people yeah. are mindful enough of what you've just said because I think in property, as a property investor, if I look at the areas that I'm investing in now versus 10 years ago, this is something that I need to look at now because that's changed. Mm. There are places that weren't at risk of flooding 10 years ago, but now are. Mm. And so understanding the change in the ecology, the change in the climate impact has had on regions, locations, is something that people need to be more but, mindful but of. But also, I think people are paying a premium for those products. So it's how are they built? Are they environmentally friendly? Yeah. Are they um, energy performing yeah. well? Things like that. And people are paying a yeah, premium. Yeah, they're willing to yeah. pay the premium. Yeah. And as you say, firms, especially a lot of the top-tier firms, will consider these environmental social issues as the primary thing before they make a business decision, which is something that's changed. You know, two, three years ago, nobody really cared about what the environmental impact of this business decision is. Yeah. Now it's actually, what's the environmental impact? Then it's, what's the revenue impact? So that's a massive change. And so if we bring it back to Intu, I think sustainability is going to be something that's really important for them, not just their own sustainability, but the sustainability of their customers and their clients. Really good fast fashion. Um, Boohoo.com, ASOS, they sell these clothes that people can buy and wear once and then throw away. That's unsustainable. And so people and, and people are rising to this. I read a report this morning, actually, on the sustainability of fashion and the impact that will have on consumers. Mm. Consumers are going to become more aware. So sustainability is important for it to, into because they need to make sure that the people they're putting into their shops have sustainability, sustainability built into their products. Otherwise, it's going to hit them. So there's layers to this. Banks financing. Banks won't be able to finance companies unless those activities are sustainable those companies are then going to be under pressure from their customers to make sure their business is sustainable. And, yeah, so sustainability is going to be a massive thing. I think that's a great point. So let's move on then to next topic. And I wanted to just discuss some of the differences specific to investing in UK real estate. And um, so when I talk about investing in property, I talk about direct investment Mm -hmm. and I talk about indirect investment when we talk about indirect that's more passive but I also think there's something in between so with direct investment that will be I'm buying a property mm-hmm. it's going to be I'm in control of the purchase I'm in control of the front end and the back end so the operating whether I'm buying it I might be adding value to it uh, through building out or developing it yeah. and then I'll manage the asset going forward so that would be di- a form of what I consider very direct yeah. And then uh, indirect or passive could be investing in a REIT or stocks and shares in a house builder, for example. And then there's something in between where it could be, as an investor, I might invest or loan to a developer. Um, Again, it's not completely passive because I've got to do my due diligence at the front end and I've got to monitor it, but it's a lot less work and stress. So... I really want to kind of touch on some of the examples of more of that passive or indirect investment that yeah. people can do. So if people wanted to invest in UK real estate, how might they go about it uh, where obviously they don't have the time and inclination and effort 
to be involved in that more direct stuff? How, how can they do yeah. that? I think you, you touched on the semi-indirect approach, which is like giving money to someone doing property. Mm. And that's a popular one. Obviously, when it comes to joint ventures, as they're known, there are, there's a framework of regulation, normally from the pers- p- perspective of the person arranging as opposed to the person investing. So that the most common indirect Direct, slightly direct approaches joint ventures where you give money to someone who's got a property deal you either get debt or equity so it's a loan with a fixed return or you get a share of the profits when the project is finished both of those are quite common in the UK at least what, what would you say then the next step of sort of passive in property investment so for example stocks and shares what, what, how might people invest in that or invest to a point where they might not know yeah. individuals. So if you've got maybe clients of yours, how would they be investing in UK real estate? So this is a good point. It's interesting that actually most people, if you look at it from a banking perspective, most people in property are people who make their money outside of property mm-hmm. and then park it in physical property. Um, Another way, one way that they hedge against the physical risk is to diversify into REITs, sort of invest, real estate investment trusts, and um, direct equity, so buying shares in companies in the property market. What's interesting to me, I've been in property for a while now, but probably over the last 10 years, my direct investment, indirect investment, sorry, in property equity has been the best performer. Mm. So if I Can look you at, give any examples of that? Yeah, the obvious example for me is Taylor Wimpy and Persimmons. Yeah. Um, I mean, if I look at growth and income, so dividends and the capital appreciation, mm-hmm. I don't think I don't know of anything that's outperformed Taylor Wimpy over the last ten years because they've been making massive profits from help to buy, from sell it, from um, selling properties, and not only do you get the capital appreciation, but you get the dividends, and they've been paying me a good amount of dividends every quarter. And is that fairly easy for someone uh, to invest in themselves? They go and set up their Hargreaves Lansdowne account yeah. and invest through that? Or are there any indexes that maybe follow these house builders? And Both. Like so I think the first point is that obviously this isn't financial advice <laughs> and this isn't an investment recommendation of any sort. But there are, so it's actually quite easy. It's a lot easier to invest indirectly than it is to invest directly mm. in buying property. For as little as five pounds, you can go online to a number of different platforms. Barclays share dealing, Hargreaves lands down, many, many, and within a few minutes, open a, do open your account, do your KYC, um, know your customer due diligence, and then be trading or be investing. And also things like uh, tax-efficient ways, like uh, stocks and shares ISAs as well. And so that's the other element I was going to get to, actually. If you look at the tax benefits, Mm. so actually take a step back. If I look at direct versus indirect in particular, um, there's two key things that I think are benefits of both. For direct investment, the main benefit for me is leverage. Mm -hmm. So I talked about Taylor Wimpy, the great performances had, the only reason why property as an investment compares is because I use leverage. Yeah, but those businesses are leveraged themselves. Those within those businesses, they leverage massively. Yeah. So although your investment isn't invested, their 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 investment is, and you are buying part of that investment. So technically, they're still leveraged. It's It's, just not directly. And that's a great point. So I don't have the direct leverage. I can't leverage my thousand pounds and turn it into eighty thousand and buy eighty thousand pounds worth of shares in Taylor Wimpy whereas I can seventy five percent leverage my cash to buy property. Mm. So that's the main advantage of physical real estate is that you yeah. have the power of leverage and the magic that that creates. 
But the main advantage of um, equity, stocks and shares, is tax efficiency and time. So we talk about how it can be passive. Personally, I don't think anything is truly passive. You still need to monitor your shares. You still need to invest, pick the right companies. You need to monitor them and make sure that you're still getting a good return comparing to stuff in the same point in time. Is there not, maybe not Taylor Wimpy, maybe the Simmons or maybe... <laughs> so exactly, because Taylor Wimpy summed up, done so well, you might be thinking, well, can they, is that growth sustainable? And and that's exactly, so I, I sold out of Taylor Wimpy because I thought it wasn't sustainable. Mm-hmm. Maybe I was wrong, but that was my thinking, yeah. that actually I'd made, they have made so much in this period, I don't think that it's going to be foreseeable for them to continue. So tax efficiency, even though you can't use leverage, you save on tax, mm-hmm. which is massive. So stamp duty, when you buy and sell shares, you pay stamp duty and any capital gains. So that's a massive saving where you don't pay any capital gains tax on anything, any profit that you make from shares if you within the ISA rules, etc. And that, I think, for a lot of people will be the difference in terms of the profit they make for property, especially with a lot of the rules that have come in in terms of being able to um, claim tax on your leverage effect. It seems like buying through a limited company as well, yeah. paying corporation tax and then income tax. And then too, income tax yeah. and then accountancy fees. Yeah. And you know, all of the admin fees. Well you're running a business and you have all the operational costs of a business swallowed up within that asset. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, exactly, yeah. without the scale. So it's one asset and you have all the operational costs in one asset. Whereas you don't have that in prob- in, in stocks and shares investing. Yeah. All you do is you put your ten pounds into Taylor Wimp, you get fractional ownership of the company and you get a proportional return and you don't pay tax on it. So I think for, for me, and actually I'll tell this story, for me personally, the only way I was able to get into property, physical property investing, including buying my own home and investment properties, was by investing in stocks and shares, mm. mainly because the barrier to entry is a lot smaller. Mm. So when I was broke, I still am, <laughs> but when I was broke as just out of uni and in my mid-20s, the only way, I couldn't afford to buy a deposit on a house in London where I, where I live now and where, where I'm from, I had to, first of all, start buying equity. And it was actually around the time, you might remember, um, the deep water, deep horizon scandal with BP. And while everybody was bashing BP, I was too, from a sustainability perspective. <laughs> what I realized is that it was an opportunity because the share price dropped yeah. far below what the company's value was, yeah. its true value. And actually, when I looked at it, and I looked at similar disasters, the drop in the market cap for BP was about three times as much as any company had paid in fines for a similar crisis and was less than the cash that they had on their balance sheet. So I rationalized that actually BP from cash could pay back double what Exxon had to pay in the previous crisis and still be in a good position, yet their market value had dropped massively. So it's disproportionate, yeah. Yeah, disproportionate. I look for these sort of asymmetric returns. And so I invested in BP as well as others, and it was returned from that that I was able to divest into investing in my first property. But as we know, property is capital intensive, so once my money had gone into that, I had to go back to the stock market to invest, to grow my money from £10 to 100 yeah. to 1000 to enough to become a deposit on the next property. So we talked about ISA and, and particularly kind of shares in, in house builders. Yeah. What about, um, how, would you, how would you say those stocks and shares so that's obviously investing in, in UK real estate but how would you say that compares to maybe putting it into a fund such as a REIT or yeah. uh, a property fund the main difference is direct investment in equity and REITs is that the REITs you invest in the physical asset almost you're not investing in the company you it's a trust made up of the properties and you get a share of the 
disbursement from that company. So it's more direct. And less a liquid. And less, less, liquid. Li- less liquid, sorry. Yeah, it's, it's less liquid because the REITs, for example, have a lot more rules in terms of when you can buy and sell. If there's massive volatility in the market, they'll probably stop withdrawals. It's a lot easier for them to do that than uh, you won't be able to. If it's a stock, if Taylor Wimpy have issues, I can still sell well, I today. Think, I think we've seen that recently on a lot of the, uh, property funds have stopped uh, withdrawals. And it's, it's quite funny. I, I've always said this is why I don't want to start a fund and I yeah. would prefer a business is because when you're exposed to certain markets the time where everyone wants to take their money out is exactly the, the time that time you need it. Yeah. yeah, so um, I understand, I totally get why a lot of these funds put stops on mm. allowing it's, their It's their actually investors in the investor's like interest, which is difficult to tell yeah. someone, I'm stopping you from taking your own money because I'm protecting you from yourself. Absolutely. But <laughs> ultimately, that's, that's what it is, yeah. is that if everybody came in, then everybody would lose. Yeah. So how do you actually protect the integrity and protect all the investors at the risk of... And I think the other, the other point is that often... The people with access to this information invested in the REITs, the more sophisticated people, would come in first and take all their money. Mm. So then the people who would lose out would be the retail investors who were left in when the price of the assets basically tumbled. So that's something that people don't understand that it benefits them, but I think that's normally a good thing when REITs. But it's, it's a material thing you need to be aware of. If there's a downside in the market, you're going to be stuck in this deal. So I think, I think from my point of view, the key difference there is liquidity really yep. but also there's a, a certain tax efficiency with the stocks and shares especially when doing it through ISA rather than, than yep. REITs and, and certain other property funds as well yeah yep, um, definitely but yeah I, th- I think I think that's that's brilliant so uh, moving on then how, how do you think or specifically UK real estate fits into most high net worths Invest, investment portfolio. I think most high net worth and ultra high net worth would have real estate as an asset class within their portfolio, mm-hmm. both direct and indirect. So they will own shares and companies that do real estate. They will own property that generates rental income, either commercial or residential. It's a fundamental part of their portfolio. I think the main difference is that they look at it less, um, not as a business, mm-hmm. but as an investment. Yeah. And for me, if I look at my property it's a business. It's not really an investment. Cause and that's the direct investment. That's the direct, yeah. yeah. So yeah. if I look at my direct investment as property, it's definitely an investment. Sorry, it's definitely a business as opposed to just an investment yeah. that I'm going to make money from. So most ultra-high net worth and high net worth people would take physical, so they might invest in some shops, retail. Mm-hmm. Um, they might invest in companies doing retail outlets. But they would also probably have physical assets that they own themselves for themselves which is almost like a hedge it's not rented out so you don't have the risk there of having to rely on the income for anything yeah. but it's in a place like central London zone mm-hmm. 1 zone 2 that you know the price is going to be stable in the long run or around the world a lot of you know they're not geographically constrained so mm-hmm. they will have property in New York and Manhattan in Paris in Madrid and all of these places but real estate is an important part now when when I look at uh Obviously, most of what I own is in property, but I always say it's still possible for me to diversify in property yep. because I look at property where you've got one location, I can diversify through location, yep. I can diversify through use class, yep. and I can also diversify through tenant type. Yep. Um, and so they're, they're kind of the main things for me. But when do you feel is a good time to start diversifying? If I'm, like I said, direct property investment really is a business 
And if you're operating that business, you've obviously got a skill set to make it work and you'd hope you're making it work. So when do you feel if I'm, for example, directly investing in uh, buy-to-let in London, at what point, if any, do you feel is a good point in time to start thinking about diversifying away from that buy-to-let in buy-to-let in private tenants in London? I mean, I think that you should always have some diversity in your portfolio. So my, my, my strategy in property is HMO, mm-hmm. but I diversify that by having different types of tenants. So I have some, within actually a lot of properties, I'll try and mix it up. So there might be some student uh, professional yeah. and maybe someone on benefits. Yeah. The person on um, getting money from the local housing association I know at least that whatever proportion that is is guaranteed to come in regardless Mm -hmm. of what happens and they're probably not going to move they tend to stay for more than the nine months that Mm -hmm. is average for people in HMOs they probably stay for two or three years actually I found is average so you can have diversity of the tenant type even within one property often people will say oh I've got HMOs and I only do professional I only do students that's always interesting to me because for example if you do students it means that the property is empty fully for the same period, the three months of the summer, every year. So maybe you might get an uplift in how much you charge the students, but surely if you had a different tenant in there, as well as the students, then it wouldn't be empty for that period. I think the point is, is that where there's going to be a risk, so you talk about HMOs, and I always use the council tax analogy, where lots of HMO rooms are starting to be council tax banded per room. And where that could be a risk, will be to your private tenants or to potentially your DSS tenants Um, and actually what where it won't be a risk is to student tenants or social housing tenants so that's that's a good example so on the flip side if you have a property that is only professional tenants HMO if that if the rule changes and it's just each room becomes banded you're going to get a massive hit Mm. but if in that house you have three students and two professionals that hit already is yeah. going to be mitigated. I mean, I, I probably wouldn't diversify within one property, but I'd try and have, if my, and, and then this goes back to your skill set, because remember, this is really, although it's called and turned an investment business, yeah. to me, this is an operational it trading is. business. So, it is. People don't understand yeah. that, though. So I, I would be looking, right, what is my skill set, and how how is my business getting an edge over other things I can do to create income? Yeah. And part of that would be what my skill set is. And so if I'm going to transfer my skill set, and if I've got transferable skills, I need to make sure that I'm not going into some other diversification option where I can't utilize my skill set. So if I'm then going into, I don't know, a location that's far away, is my skill set still relevant there? And can I then use that skill set efficiency to still get the edge and it's that point where I might think, well, actually, looking towards a more passive investment, yeah. like we've talked about, to diversify away yeah. might be a good idea. Yeah, it's a great example. So if you wanted to do foreign investing, for example, if you've been a UK investor your whole life, you know UK assets, you know UK property, and then you want to diversify with foreign assets, your best bet would probably not be to go to Taiwan and buy a re- a property to rent out in Taiwan. Mm. Your best bet would probably be to invest in a fund that can hedge your risk but offer you broad access to the international market and be managed by people who have a lot of experience in those markets. You keep saying hedge and I I would say diversify because again 
when I look at diversification versus hedging and the difference between them, my understanding is diversification is two or more assets that are uncorrelated, whereas my understanding of hedging is two or more assets that are negatively correlated, i.e. when one moves up, one moves down. And for me, there's a place for hedging, which, for example... In a, um, in a property portfolio, I might find, right, the market is a bit wobbly at the moment. I feel that getting out of the market, selling my assets and paying any tax and the cost of them buying more but, assets, yeah. it's the cost of the purchase, might offset actually coming out of the market. Yeah. So I may want to temporarily for, say, a year, hedge against those assets, but not come out of that yeah. market. And that's where that might be more beneficial rather than diversifying. Yeah, so, so I, I see yeah. hedging as a form of diversification yeah. as opposed to anything. And you're right, actually, what most financial institutions would do if they have assets which are, or they think something's going to happen materially to affect the price, they probably wouldn't come out of it because yeah. they invest for the long term. Absolutely, yeah. So they would look at something that's correlated negatively um, or has a high alpha and use that so that as this price rises, this one falls. Now, there's options, there's, there's all of those things as well that you can use to hedge. And we've kind of discussed how you can diversify in property through tenant type, use class, location. What do you think, if any, are any examples of investments that negatively correlate against property? And I know property's broad, it could be, I don't know, certain use classes, tenant types, yeah. locations. But is there anything that comes to mind that you feel does normally negatively correlate? Typically, when it comes to property investing, actually, one point to make on diversification before, Warren Buffett, to steal Warren Buffett's quote, is that um, you can always diversify too much. And if you have something that's working, then you can diversify away the benefits. Mm. To your example, if you have London and you're investing in London and it's going really well, but then you think, let me go up to Scotland... Mm you will no longer get the benefits of London investing. Yeah, it's that efficiency of skill set, yeah. So exactly. So that's really important that you don't... Diversi- diversification is good and it's really important, but also it's concentration. Concentrating and focusing on a specific element, target strategy, market, is probably what's going to lead to Great bigger research, returns. Yeah. Than, well, I than, think focus and grit are the two things that kind yeah. of... If you're in this game, you, you need. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So in terms of property investing and negatively correlated assets, the most obvious one is really, well, firstly, anything that benefits from property falling. So house builders, or they will, if property prices fall, they will normally fall yeah. alongside with it. But people who, say, do rental accommodation, mm-hmm. will typically their price will rise. And so if, if you're focused on letting and the price of houses is falling, uh, sorry, rising, the price of purchasing houses is rising, the letting businesses often do well. But that's not necessarily because rents go up. That's no. just yields increase. Yeah, So yields, yields increase from two ways, from rents going up or, pro- or prices coming down, down yeah. and, it's, and it's either of those. I mean, is there, uh, if you were running a portfolio, I'm putting you on the spot here a mm. bit, um, but if you were running a, a, a broad investment portfolio for a high net worth client who's, quite heavily into UK real estate would there be I don't know something like gold or anything like that a specific asset class that you might think well actually yeah. this this negatively correlates not correlates for property so yeah. gold not necessarily a property yeah. I would, we would probably use gold as a negative correlation to 
um, maybe oil even yeah. or broader market events mm-hmm. use gold to hedge against the world because yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> whenever things start to go negatively people put their money in gold yeah. um, so not necessarily gold from a property perspective but bonds actually mm-hmm. uh, generally tend to do well um, sovereign bonds do well corporate bonds do well um, normally the thing about property as well as, as you know is very local mm. so we always talk about the property market yeah. but actually property is so localised in terms of how the prices move what the rental yields yeah. are that it's very difficult to apply especially from a portfolio yeah. view to apply a generic view and to like it. we've spoken about we could have house prices shooting up and retail coming down yeah, so it's, exactly. not, it's not specific yet. yeah and it's hard but actually I think you made a really good point on bonds yeah, yeah. Bonds, is, bonds is always a good one because I think it's uh, <laughs> interesting thing about bonds so separate to property is that it, we talked a bit about the low interest rate environment and as a throwaway point what that's effectively done is created a bubble in the bond market well it's a bubble in asset yeah in the, the asset. general yeah, physical yeah, yeah, assets yeah, yeah. But specifically in the bond market, because people chasing yields have been rushing to them, where now you have bonds, even junk bonds, which are trading quite highly because you're getting a return. As mm-hmm. opposed to you, people in, in Asia have been getting negative return for a long time. Where would you rather have people taking money from you when you put it in the <laughs> bank or investing in something that's already, you know, is of poor quality, yeah. but actually will give you 1%. And so that, that's created a massive bubble in the bond market, which kind of worries me. Um, I don't know necessarily how it's going to go down. It's interesting that the global bond market is something like 10 times as big as the global stock market. Yeah. So there's a lot more money in this paper asset based than in, in anything equity based. So bonds, bonds uh, again, as over the last 10 years or even before that, when prices were falling in, in, in global real estate, a lot of that money moved into the bond market. So bonds are normally a good correlation to property. Yeah. But I think there's still an inherent risk there just because of what's happened in there, the last 10 years. There's always a risk, isn't there? But it's Can't make money without risk. <laughs> exactly. That's the key, right? <laughs> Brilliant. So like, I've, we've gone through most of the points that I kind of wanted to, to pick up. Is there anything specific that you want the audience to, to hear or to discuss or to know about you? About me? I don't know if about me, but... A couple of things, just in terms of my own analysis, that are keeping me occupied mentally. I looked at some data recently around um, CDOs, collateralized debt obligations, Mm -hmm. and collateralized loans. So this is where people take loans from different places and put them into one entity and then sell that as the product. A little bit like in 2008 with the mortgages. Yeah, Yeah. so that was mortgage-backed securities. It's a form of CDO, so mortgage well, that, that specifically is mortgages being asset-backed. And so 2008 was really interesting because that's what happened and that's what a lot of people blame for the crisis. Um, what's interesting to me is with CDOs in particular, over the last 10 years, um, these debt obligations have been doing really well. So, in fact, no company that's rated AAA or AA by Moody's has defaulted on any of its loans around the world, which is quite impressive so that tells me that from a debt perspective a lot of companies are in a much better place than they were I mean so zero for AAA and do you do you think that's a case of being less highly leveraged or do you think that's a case that the cost of the debt in terms of interest rates is lower the cost of the debt is lower so debt repayments is lower but I think a lot of it will be management because of how the businesses are managing debt as opposed to because you can always get 
high risk debt. You yeah, can always leverage eighty percent, eighty five percent, ninety percent. Then the cost of debt actually isn't that low. Hmm. So cost of debt is low, but I don't think that's why there's been less defaults. Because actually, if you look at it beyond triple A, so beyond double A, so triple B A, triple B B, etc., all the way down, default rate for all of them is about thirty. 37 percent oh wow okay so from a to a double a there you go from 36 percent to zero so it's about those companies and how they're being managed so one one thing i i'm i would point I, i'd make a point there on is that there is a big difference now with how the banks are operating and you'll know far more than this than i will uh in the in the great financial crash banks did not have capital reserves and yeah. so when there was a chance of anyone defaulting or actually a lot of the time before anyone defaulted they wanted to call loans in yeah. whereas now even if people are potentially in financial difficulties those banks have capital reserves in place because rules were put in by by the bank of england there mm-hmm. to do that um which means that they're not as aggressive in taking their money back yeah. and maybe taking a loss just to get cash, they can sit on it a bit longer. I wonder if that would, would maybe make... Yeah, definitely. It so I think it, it does to, to the extent, actually, that it's really the... We're talking about banks. Mm. Um, you will know that a lot of the lenders, especially in property for small SMEs, are not banks. Yeah. So, so what they you have said a credit is, line from banks. They right? do, yeah. but they're under different terms. Yeah. And not just, they have a credit line a lot from private investors yes. as well under yeah. different terms. So what you said is true for banks and for the, the regulated entities. Yeah. Um, my concern is that a lot of developers are not using funding from banks. And they're using funding from small bridges, small lenders who are in the same position that banks were. That's a great point. Yeah. Pre. So that, I think it's going to be interesting that a lot of the regulated institutions, the ones regulated by the PRA in particular, will have these PRA is Prudential Regulatory Authority. Yeah. And so they will have these buffers in place. They will have these um, thresholds, even from property perspective. If you're a portfolio landlord, that's a requirement where you, you can, they can only lend to you certain lend LTVs across your portfolio regardless of what the LTV is on that particular deal. So those things are really important but they're mainly for prudentially regulated entities like banks. There's lots of small bridges who are maybe using private backers to fund them or have credit lines to banks. The banks won't give them the same terms that they're giving to the individuals because there's no investor protection rules that yeah. they need to abide by. It's business so, to business, which comes B2B, to which is a whole different, whole different thing. Yeah. So my concern there is that you're right, there is a lot more protection in the market, but unfortunately, not unfortunately, a lot of the people operating the market have had to go to new sources for money post-financial crisis where banks were lending a lot less. And mm. again, putting these, reducing the LTVs, looking at the deals and say, actually, we might have lent you 80% before, but now we only give you 40%. And so now they've been going to other people who will give them that 70 or 80%, but those people have different terms to banks in this market. So that's a risk that I'm keeping a close eye on, to be honest. Um, so yeah, I think the, the, the AAA to A, the, the companies I feel are a lot more, uh, the good companies are a lot better positioned for any economic yeah. crisis. I think that's something that we should be aware of. Um, look, we, we talked about investing. Looking globally, there's obviously the U.S.-China trade tensions that were massive through most of last year, yeah. where that was a 
red flag to any investor because you didn't know where, the, where it was going to go, what was going to happen. Obviously, China being the world's biggest exporter affects most companies. But actually, this year, coming into it, we seem to be, especially being an election year in the U.S., we're in a much better position. They already have a first deal, which they've done. So that's going to have a broader impact on the market. It's going to be mm. a lot of emerging market companies that are going to do better as a result. And speaking of emerging market, actually, that brings me to my other point, which is around 5G. So one of the things working in strategy that we look at is stuff that's coming in the horizon that's going to impact the market. And most recently, one of the things that I've looked at is the implementation of 5G. Yeah. So this is something that I think is going to have a disproportionate asymmetric return, both in the economy and to the companies that are involved in 5G. Um, 5G, for those who don't know, is a faster form of communication via the mobile network. So it's like 4G, but a whole G more. <laughs> and um, the main benefit of 5G is that we get into this point where you have smart devices, um, cars, clocks, and Alexa. Yeah. 5G is the technology that will allow all of those things to talk to each other. So it's got the speed, the capabilities to allow your car to talk to your fridge. Yeah. For example, why would you want to do that? I don't know. But 5G will let your car talk to your fridge. So... Things like that and the benefits that that's going to create. Um, you have obviously the whole issue with Huawei and um, the, the Americans <laughs> wanting us to not use it because of the implementation challenges with China and security. But notwithstanding that, there are Taiwanese companies, Korean companies who are, I think, going to massively benefit in this wave because they've done, emerging markets actually has done really badly. The Western economy, UK, America, Europe, has done really well, yeah. um, stock market-wise. Last year, I actually predicted it was going to be bad, and it ended up being great. So I was definitely wrong on that one. But emerging markets were bad. Yeah. And actually, I see a lot of opportunity for upside in emerging markets, particularly Taiwanese and Chinese, sorry, Taiwanese and Korean companies that are focused in the semiconductor space and have anything to do with the 5G space, which is about to go into snowball mode. So just on that, one of the things that I thought was really interesting that um, I found out last month was the amount of investment into the UK in artificial intelligence yeah. and fintech yeah. since kind of Brexit. the Brexit has rocketed yeah. and it hasn't been affected at all. And it seems to be really the new kind of the new thing that is, is going on in the UK and the investment is just out yeah. like the, the numbers are crazy and also the grants and the amount of high growth companies we've now got in the UK as well so it's, it, it was a really positive outlook from that yeah I mean as you know um, fintech is a space that I occupy and I have my startup future banking um, which is basically focused on fintech AI machine learning cloud technology and upskilling people so that they're aware of it but also syndicating a lot of the benefits that that's going to bring to society from a financial inclusion perspective. So fintech is a space that is really interesting to me. The money that's been flooding in as you mentioned post-Brexit vote over the last 12 months hasn't necessarily surprised me. Britain has got more London and let's be more specific has got more fintech funding than Berlin or Paris mm. combined over the last 12 months which is quite shocking considering we're leaving Europe and people see that as a negative. The downside or the potential downside to that really will be is are those investments coming in because we're leaving. A good example is last year, um, we were supposed to leave, I think, twice there were dates. If you look at the economy, a lot of investment were made prior to the dates we were supposed to leave. Those were always protection measures that companies were making to try and protect themselves against leaving. 
So those weren't revenue spends that are going to generate profit. Those were just expenses that are going to stave off some of the challenges. The problem there is that it boosted our economy before March, boosted the economy before June. But in the long run, the, the next quarter comes and you're going to get a massive decline yeah. because it's not sustained lending. And so I wonder if people thought we were leaving, so they were part, pushing a lot of money in, what the impact would be in the long term. But also the more important thing is what are the terms going to be when we leave Europe? The main reason for me why that investment comes to the UK is because the people, the money follows the people. Mm. And so talent. the talent. So all of these talented people were in London. So whether you're in Berlin or Paris, you have a fintech startup, you're probably going to want to be in London mm. to meet investors, employ the best talented staff from all over the world. Now, post-Brexit, is UK going to be as an attractive destination? Are the rules that we put in place going to continue to allow people from Berlin to come here to start their company on a Friday and then go back to Berlin on a Saturday mm-hmm. without having to fill in a single piece of paperwork? You know, that's one of the reasons people don't necessarily... They, it's great to look at the numbers and see how much investment we're getting. But actually, one of the reasons is because you can leave Berlin on a Friday morning, come to London, set up your company, meet with investors and go back home for the weekend to spend with your family. Mm. Is that going to change? Because if that changes, then the investment will change. So that's, yeah, an interesting dynamic. Let's wait and see how the Brexit politics impact the economics. Personally, I'm not a big fan of politics. I'm a big fan of economics. Mm. I believe in economics more than I believe in politics. Unfortunately, politicians always ruin things. (laughs) So let's see what the politicians do to the economics. Fantastic. Well, that's been that's been brilliant. Now, I've got one last question. I know, obviously, you've got various businesses and startups and, obviously, your own property business. One of the questions I quite like to ask most of my guests is, what's the kindest thing someone's ever done for you in business? Wow. Okay. Um, one of the... I'll give you two, actually. Okay. Um, one of them is, while we're here recording, one of my colleagues, Avi, is kindly doing some of the recording for us so this is very kind of Thanks, you <laughs> thank you for giving up your time to help with our business in effect um, the other thing actually is something that's more recent and actually something I'm going to do work on as soon as we leave this interview actually was a guy that I know called Rod Turner I don't know if you know him <laughs> yeah so one of the things that you did actually is I spoke to you I had a conversation with you about some of the challenges I was having in property and just one of the bad things when you have lots of different businesses is when something is going wrong you can always find something else to focus on so I was having a challenge with one of my properties and you put me in touch with someone who seems very helpful and is really helping me move along um, as well because I'm always so busy so it's difficult for me to respond to emails and do things so he's been very patient and been very helpful and that was very kind because you didn't have to do that you don't have to do that. You know, that was someone in your network, probably a relationship you've cultivated, you've built on, developed. You didn't have to give it away like you did. So that was very yeah. kind. You're welcome. Hope it, hope it works out. I hope so too. <laughs> and, thank, and thank you very much for your time coming, coming on the broadcast. Oh man, the pleasure was all mine. The pleasure was all mine. And very soon we're going to see you on Slow Money. So Rod, I have a question for you, okay. actually. Yeah. One of the things that I'm really passionate about is uh, social enterprise. Yeah. And Actually, Slow Money is a social enterprise. Future Banking is a social enterprise. Both of those are themed around giving back. Mm-hmm. I was in Ghana recently with Future Banking and I volunteered in a school and it was great to see the impact learning about blockchain, AI, machine learning had on those kids. Mm-hmm. You did an event really recently 
on a similar vein, looking at the trying to actually you tell you tell me it was a charity property event. Yeah, well, it was a it was a full day workshop for existing property businesses, so direct property investors, developers, and some lenders as well. Um, and the idea was just looking at your investments and property business more of a, as more of a business rather than a hobby or something like that. We raised money for a couple of causes. So one was uh, a young man who sadly passed passed away. Um, his he left a, a young boy behind. So we wanted to raise money to go into a junior SIP and a junior ISA for that child. And then the other was uh, something called the Bwengu Project, which is out in Malawi, which helps to build and maintain schools and toilet blocks. That's amazing. Yeah. A lot of, you know, a lot of people in property are more focused on trying to drive up profit, trying to make money. Uh, I don't know if that's true. I think a lot of people starting in property and a lot of people at a certain level, because they have to be, because, let's face it, everyone needs money to to live so I think I think what you find in a lot of these smaller businesses and people starting out is quite often the amount of money they're getting in their back pocket isn't as much as maybe they expected so they do need to focus on that but there's plenty of bigger companies that do do a lot I think so yeah yeah, yeah. and so then from the workshop that you did what was the biggest thing that you think people took away from there so we covered quite a bit but I think one of the one of the interesting things was where we started talking about liquidation of companies, the capital stack, and structuring deals together. Mm-hmm. So ways in which to structure investment into the company, how to set up shareholding, how to maybe entice investors that may not have wanted to invest in equity because they might have had certain objections to it, and mm-hmm. overcoming those objections and covering the investors point of view because what we want is when we've got investors coming in we want long-term investors we mm-hmm. want them to keep investing with us so it's cover overcoming those objections by structuring um, their investment in a slightly different way maybe to safeguard it more from the investors point of view but allowing everyone to get some upside and so what's the best way for an investor to safeguard it there is no best way it's very dependent on what they're trying to do but some examples that we talked about that I think um, people were not quite aware of was things like if you're investing as a director and putting money into your own company so if someone's coming in as a shareholder one of the things they can do is put a floating charge on that money Mm -hmm. Um, what that means is uh, the business can still trade the assets within the company and they can go in and out but if the default on the loan that floating charge becomes a fixed charge mm-hmm. and it means that they get paid before uh, other people in that capital stack such as unsecured creditors that might be contracted. So again, that safeguards their money there. Mm-hmm. We also talked about things like preferential shares, yeah. cumulative shares, convertible shares, um, which essentially what you're doing is you're structuring the way certain shareholders will be paid versus other certain shareholders. And it's it's all about making it work for both parties, for the investor and the operator or developer. Awesome. I think we have to get you back in to talk a bit more about that particular element in, in a lot more detail like you went through. Yeah, it's, 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 it can be fairly detailed, but again, it's, it's all about um, structuring this to the specific people and the specific projects. So there's lots of, that's why there is no best way. It's yeah. very dependent on what each party is trying to achieve. Cool. Great. Well, thanks very much, Kwesi. Uh, and that's all we've got time for today. Cheers. Thank you, Rod. 
Please join me next time for more detailed discussions about property on The Rodcast.